Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. I have an amazing man with me today. His name is Steve Wilson. Steve has been through some crazy stuff. And I'm going to preface this right now by letting you guys know, if you hear a little bit of the stuffiness of my nose, I do have a little bit of a cold, but I will beat this uh, just as we beat everything that we go through, right? Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you with me today. Thank you. Me too. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Well, I grew up in Delaware, Ohio, which is just about 20 miles from Columbus. Um, I had a brother and a sister. And Delaware is a small town. About that time, it was about 15,000 people. Now it's probably 30 or 40. Wow. But had a pretty good upbringing until one day when I was nine, I got sexually assaulted. Oof. And I didn't tell anybody. Didn't know what the hell to do. And I didn't know why he did it to me or what he was doing. But he did. And so I told no one for... 30 years. And that kind of started me on a downhill trajectory. And things went south from then. Yeah, it usually does. Uh, how did you find that it was affecting you in your everyday life by not being able to tell anybody? Well, first of all, I wasn't sure what happened. I didn't know a man would do that to another uh, man. Um, so I kind of blamed myself, which was stupid, but that's the first thing I thought. And I figured that everybody would laugh at me if I brought it up. So I didn't. And I had my first depressive episode later that year and it was pretty bad and things just went went south as I said and I didn't care about doing my class work I'd always been the, up in the top of the scholastic area and I, I just didn't enjoy anything yeah. uh I went from an all-A student to almost failing the fourth grade. 
Wow. So it was pretty bad. And I didn't care about my friends, my family. And they didn't know what was going on. They were oblivious to everything. So that didn't help either. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that back that if you had opened up to them that your family would have been supportive of you? Or do you think it was something that people really didn't talk about enough? They wouldn't have known what to do. Well, I'll tell you, my belief is that people would say, well, go take a walk or go see a movie. You'll get better. Um, That was 1958. Wow. I'm 74 years old. And uh, I doubt if anybody would back then know how to react. Right. They just think I was lazy or whatever else goes with that. Yeah. Did you enjoy sports or anything when you were a kid? Did you have anything like that as an Yes, I was a pretty good basketball player, although not great. <laughs> and uh, I was a very good golfer. Wow. Um, it's I an unusual en- sport for somebody so young. Well, I don't know how much I played when I was nine, uh, but I began playing later later on. You yeah. have to realize with with bipolar which I didn't find out it was for many years. Wow. Um, Comes and goes in waves. And uh, it can hit and be very bad, very lonely, very dark for two or three months. And then it can ease off for two or three months. So there are normal times and there are really bad times. So, yeah. That's just the way it works. Right. Right. And my brother has bipolar. And I know that until he found the right medication, things were really rough on him. I can't imagine going through that as a kid that's already experienced trauma and you're going through this. That's, well, it, that's it, a lot. It would have been better if they had medications. Yeah. But I didn't even see anybody. Wow. See how long? 12 years, something like that. See, it really hit badly after I graduated from high school, I mean, college. And uh, they diagnosed me as uh, severely depressed, gave me medications for depression. They made things worse. I, I reacted if I had the flu. Oof. Depression got worse, and that was 1971 or 72. I was getting worse and worse, and finally in 78, seven years later, my psychiatrist said, oh, I might have made a mistake. Maybe you're bipolar. Well, I didn't know what bipolar was. Plus, I did appreciate him waiting seven years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pretty stupid. But anyway, he gave me lithium, and it worked right away. Now, it wow. didn't get me back to normal. It probably got me 50% of the way there. But now I could function. Wow. That's awesome. So in our original correspondence, you'd mentioned something about how you had a lot of anxiety surrounding um, trying to go out for football. And you did something really um, 
just absolutely shocking to be able to get out of it. What did you do to get out of playing football? Well, you have to go back because I, I went out for football. I was a decent football player in, in uh, elementary school. So I thought I'd go out for football. But the first thing that happened, I didn't like it because it was different than elementary school it was a lot of physical hitting and I'm, I'm not, I'm not into that. Yeah. And, uh, but the real thing that, that got me to dislike it in seventh grade was that when I went into the locker room after practice, I kind of froze because there were 30 or 40 guys all naked in the showers and I sat in the corner and covered myself with a towel. I didn't have a clue why, because I had almost myself totally forgotten about the uh, sexual assault. Yeah. So that really freaked me out. Now, I didn't quit. I just never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> is that the same thing <laughs> <laughs> to some people that would be <laughs> <laughs> and so got through the football year and didn't go out in eighth grade uh, and then one day I was playing golf and my mother came out and said football starting ninth grade football starting today you're going out or tomorrow and I was scared to death I have to see those guys in the shower and uh, she wouldn't let me not go out, so I went out, and it was terrible. Um, the hitting was a lot harder, and there were more people, and I just hated it. So one day, uh, I was throwing a football along at my house with a buddy, and it and the ball careened off my finger and dislocated it. Mm. So <laughs> I went up to my room after we were done and I said, this is a great opportunity to get out of football. So I took my finger in my hand and pulled it, broke it, Oh, and I was then out of football. Oh, <laughs> oh, that, oh, ouch. <laughs> oh, no, I looked at it, oh. <laughs> I looked at it as a great accomplishment. No more football. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot to overcome your own pain receptors and your own physical fear of pain to be able to do something like that anyway. Holy cow. It was pretty easy. Did you I ever? Was screwed at the time. I didn't know I was screwed up. I didn't know anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just knew that things were bad and football was making it worse. Did you ever tell your family that you broke your finger on purpose? No. Wow. Yeah. In fact, the first time this came up was when I started writing my book. Wow. My gosh. So 
when did you start to finally open up about it and start talking about your traumatic past? Well, let's go to, we got to, we got to hit some other things first before. We okay. Um, as I said, my worst times were right out of college. I had had a love affair with a young lady and then she said goodbye and it put me into a deep depression and one day I was at my parents house and we were having a barbecue and I was now got to preface this again my dad and I were not friends we weren't enemies, but we had no relationship at all. Yeah. And as I go back, thinking about that, I don't really know why, but I really disliked him. So anyway, I was at this barbecue and I was cooking the hamburgers and he came over to me and he shoved me out of the way and says, you don't know what the hell you're doing. I'll cook them. Uh so... There was a knife on the grill and I picked it up. And the next thing you know, I was on my way to the hospital, Harding Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital about 15 miles away oh. from our house. Now to find out what I did, you have to read the book. <laughs> What's the name of your Teetering on a tightrope, my bipolar journey. That definitely sounds like you were teetering on a tightrope there. That's that's a scary moment. Do you yeah. did you know in that exact moment what you were doing, or was it a, a blackout scenario where you really couldn't control yourself? Well, it was an impulse feeling, but. I, I don't want to tell what I did, but uh, right. safe to say nobody got hurt. Okay. So I was in the hospital for three weeks. It was not a hospital like you think of today. It was called Harding Hospital. It had been around for See, that time I was 70, 70 years. And it was a special hospital where they had tennis courts, a basketball. Uh, they had you in not confined so much. The doors were locked and all that, but you didn't have the feeling of being trapped. There was pool. Uh, there were there were all kinds of things. Wow! And they had this belief uh, that work and physical activity would help get over the depression. Remember, I wasn't diagnosed with uh, with bipolar yet. Right. So anyway, I was there for three weeks. They did some, some unique things, and I did get better, and I got a medication that kind of worked, but not really well. 
And yeah. after that, I got out and it was a rough, let's see, that was 71. That was when it was the roughest the next seven years. Wow. And I got married in 72 and we've been married for 50 years. And how the hell she put up with me, I'll never know. <laughs> well, congratulations on 50 years. That's Thanks. kind of amazing in itself. It is. And I had somebody tell me the other day that my wife, Lenny, must be a saint. <laughs> you know what? Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody had a clue. Right. But she loved you enough to stick around. Yeah, she she's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So what all have you done since that like really truly scary part of your life? What have you done to help yourself to move beyond it and to understand it? Well, as I said, seven years went by and I got re-diagnosed and yeah. got better. But the problem was I couldn't keep a job. Now, we had a clothing store in Delaware, and it was a very good one, but I didn't want anything to do with it. I really wanted to be in the golf business. <laughs> and, but I uh, couldn't keep a job. I had a job in the golf business in, the, in 73 or 4, and... I couldn't do it. I quit six months later. Then I got another job and quit six months later. I just couldn't do anything. Um, I kind of blamed everybody and then I quit and I yelled at them and it was bad. So I was forced to go into my father's business because I had no alternative. Wow. And uh, that didn't work out. I quit it. Uh, Got a job at a big department store out here, quit it, decided I really had to go endure my dad because I had no, no alternative. Right. So I did that until 1995, and then I closed that store. And all those years, I was kind of, as I said, halfway there. I didn't have any trauma uh, all those years, but it was tough. Right. Well, you didn't have repeated trauma, but you still had the initial trauma that you experienced starting when you were nine, and then the constant triggering episodes as you were growing up. Even though that wasn't brand new trauma, it was still traumatizing. Yeah, for sure. And I tell you, one of the ways the uh, sexual assault affected me most was sexually really i uh i was in college and i had quite a few no i don't know what quite a few would be but four or five women that uh i went with during those four years and I could not perform sexually because I had no feeling. Wow. Now, 
it wasn't until after the third or fourth woman that I uh, connected the dots and said, you know, shit, this must be from my uh, <laughs> years ago. Yeah. So that was traumatic in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Was that a, an indicator for you that you needed to start digging in and to figure out how to how to try to fix what was going on in your head? No. It, no. It, it didn't trigger. It didn't do anything for me to think about it or get any help. Wow. Uh, the way it uh, the way it changed was. Uh, when I was a junior, I met a girl from Columbus. We both went to Rollins College in Florida, and we didn't know each other in Ohio, but we met in uh, at college, and things went really well, and we we got very close to each other. Sex was no problem. I never figured out why it was no problem with her, but everybody else it was. Hmm. So then she dumped me and six or eight months later, I met my wife and we've been together ever since. Wow. So it was a good thing she dumped you. (laughs) I didn't think so at the time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Can't imagine anybody would, but at the same time, hey, you know, seems like there was a good reason for it. Well, this the, the woman who dumped me um, came back a year later, and I don't know why, but we started talking, and then she said she couldn't do it and walked away. Now, I don't know what she was going to do, but anyway, that put me into the beginning of my seven-year long depression Oof. so and then wow. that was 1970 wow but you had your wife to help you through some of that right well we were not married yet and we got married in 72 okay and yeah but you know i was so out of control then that uh, there's not much she could do about it and uh, she hadn't signed up for any of that stuff. <laughs> right. Right. Nobody does. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the biggest thing that's helped you through everything that you've been through? Well, since I had felt so much better with the lithium uh, and I was working at the store, and every year at Christmas, we would hire a couple of young high school students or even junior high students. We had a pretty big store and it was it did real well. So we used them to wrap packages. Could we sold a lot of them and uh, the guys on the floor didn't have time to do it. So anyway, we hired this one girl and she was like 16 very cute, very bubbly, uh, did well in school, laughed a lot. 
And then one Saturday, I came to the store to open it up. And there was a young lady who also worked for us, which was uh, the other girl's good friend. And she, she came in after, right after I did, and she broke out crying. And I said, Jesus, what's wrong? And she said, uh, I believe the, I don't even remember the girl's name, but she said, uh, the girl got in bed last night and pulled the covers over and shot herself in the head. Wow. Now, this was a young girl who appeared to be in perfect shape. And I never knew why she killed herself. Um, but that started me wanting to convey uh, what can happen with depression or bipolar. Right. There's so many mental health problems around. And so I began talking to psychology and health classes at high schools because I was so disturbed by teenage depression. And that went on for a few years. And then we moved out here to Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, they wouldn't let me do it because I, they decided I was too old. They didn't want anybody over 35 which was kind of stupid, but that's what they said. So in 2015, wow. I answered an ad in a newspaper that asked for uh, facilitators for mental health groups. They accepted me, and I've been doing that twice a week ever since. Wow. That's amazing. So that's pretty fulfilling, but I'll tell you, it's really disturbing. Uh, I talked to about Oh, maybe 15 to 18 people in my groups. I have two groups uh, a week. And I've seen well over a thousand people during that time. And there's a very high percentage. Now, I don't know whether that means 20% or 50%, but it's higher than anybody would think of people who are suffering from mental illness because they were sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, mentally assaulted when they were young. Yes. It's high. Yeah. It's sad. And uh, there's a huge connection, honestly. Yes. Huge. And uh, so I do that and I really enjoy it. And I think we've helped a lot of people, but uh, God, there must be, what did I figure out? I I think the number, the percentage of people who need and and uh, suffer from mental illness is like twenty percent in the world, mm -hmm. not just the United States. And that's just the people that have actually sought help too. You know, they're yes. they yes. the estimates for the people who need help and aren't able to obtain it is extremely high huge um and the reason uh a lot of people don't find 
relief and aren't able to live their lives the way they would like to, um, only 50% or a little higher people who are suffering get help from medications. Wow. Uh, and people also don't believe in medication, even though they might have worked for them. So right. they just take medication. And then those who do, a high percentage of them, take it for a week, say it didn't help, and quit without talking to their psychiatrist. Right. So there's a lot of blame to go around for why people don't get better. A lot of them just think this is the way it's going to be, so I'll suffer. And there is help out there for them, but they just won't take it. Right. And for those who aren't helped by medication, there are other things like uh, uh, dialectically, dialectic, shoot, I can't think of it. Uh, but anyway, there is these uh, groups that they can get in that use different uh, methods to calm the depression or the bipolar. And it works. But people don't know about them, not unless they come to my group or other people's groups. Wow. And where can people find more information on that if they're looking for it? Well, uh, they can, the big uh, outfit that is open in the United States is NAMI, N-A-M-I. Right. And for people that are not familiar, NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Yes. And there's another one, uh, Mental Health America. And you can just Google these and they come right up. Right. And you can call them or chat with them, whatever you want to do. But you can get a lot of information from them. Yeah. NAMI, I actually have some firsthand experience with NAMI myself. I'm sitting right here on my desk in front of me. I have... Uh, business card for the board of directors and for the president of the Colorado chapter. Oh, cool. um, yeah. They're, they're amazing people. They can do such incredible things to be able to help people through this journey. So. Yeah. And there are local groups. I the one I assist with for my facilitating here in Phoenix is not NAMI or it's not mental health America. It's a group called COPA. And it only works in Arizona, but they do an amazing job. Wow, that's cool. And it's only available to people who live out there in that area? No, um, it's not. I have a couple people who are in Tucson, which is 120 miles from here. Oh, wow. I have one from New Hampshire. Wow. From Michigan. Uh, but I will say they all, all those people found me because they were in Arizona for a while and just were looking here and then I allow them to keep on when they go back. Oh, there are so many chapters around the United States that you ought to be able to find somebody in your own uh, area. Right. And we do things in the group such as have little uh, outings for lunch or dinner. Uh, so it's a good way to connect and and a lot of people use these groups because they're so damn lonely yes. and it becomes their uh, 
social activity. I would say out of my 25 or 30 people a week, 10 or 12 of them go to about four or five meetings a week. Wow. They need that sense of community. Yes, they do. That's amazing. And I will say that one of the biggest factors that causes people to get worse and worse is loneliness. Yeah. It is big time uh, problem with a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I have to really back that up for my own experience too. Um, as a survivor of human trafficking, I was incredibly lonely trying to figure out how to navigate everything that I'd been through completely by myself. The whole reason I started this podcast was because I felt that intense loneliness where I felt like I was the only person in the world that was going through this and had experienced anything like this. I needed that sense of community. So I started reaching out and talking to people like yourself and suddenly there was a whole new world out there of people that not only understand what it means to go through the trauma, but understand what it means to need that kind of sense of community and want to help. And people like you are really inspirational to people like me. I, I just want you to know that, Steve. You're, you're you. amazing. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been through a lot, but I've had... Uh... I've had assists from friends, my wife, my brother and sister. But uh, I, I tell you one, one big thing that will help people get through is to laugh a lot. <laughs> yes. Try to have fun. And at least for that few minutes or a couple hours, you'll feel a lot better and not have to think about how miserable you are <laughs> absolutely in my darkest days my favorite genre movies was comedies what'd Made you say me feel better during my darkest days my favorite genre for movies was comedies i loved yes. watching comedies yes. yeah right. anything to make me smile or laugh and forget the pain that yeah. is true yeah who inspires you the most my wife well, that was a quick answer, Steve. I love that. <laughs> I hope she knows that she's a lucky lady to have you, too. Well, she'll say that every once in a while, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if she means it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she does. She's stuck with you for 50 years. She's yep. got to mean it deep in her soul. Yeah. And you guys have had some challenges together, haven't you? Uh, yes. Uh, my wife is Jewish. I'm nothing. <laughs> and my family did not accept her oh. for that reason alone. And I would say, well, my mom and dad are dead, but they were no help with Lenny. And my brother's okay with it. My sister tries to be, but... Uh, Let's just say they made Lenny very uncomfortable and that spilled over into our marriage. But we, we survived, you know. Every marriage has got to go through some stuff. Right. Have you got a part of your book that you would like to read for the audience? Sure. You ready? I'm ready. 
When I was a fun-loving kid of nine, I never dreamed I would face the most terrifying day of my life in a matter of months. One of my first childhood memories from this time was when my best friend Stocks and I were rambling along a wooded area near my home, minding our own business, when suddenly we spotted a shed. Venturing into it, we discovered shovels, tools, and gardening supplies. Above our heads was a glass ceiling divided into panes, much like a greenhouse. It was fortuitous for us that one of the panes was missing. We could climb through the opening and slide down the slanted roof into the newly fallen snow. As an ultra-thin, scrawny 50-pounder, I went first. During my exit, I accidentally broke one of the panes, sensing shards of glass in all directions. Without further incident, I made it to the roof. My buddy was a heavy-set kid and tried to wiggle through the openings but couldn't make it. As he fell to the floor, he spied a hammer. He hoisted himself up to the glass, broke the remaining panes, and scurried onto the roof. We both slid down the roof and then headed toward the woods. Out of nowhere, we heard a loud woman's voice yelling, Stop! What are you hooligans doing? What are your names? At that moment, I had a great idea for how we could escape. Tell her you're me, and I'll tell her I'm you. She'll never figure out who we are, I whispered. So we did, and then ran into the woods, howling with laughter all the way home. <laughs> the following day at school, the school secretary entered our classroom and told Mrs. Seidel, our teacher, to send the two Steves to the office. Knowing we were in trouble, we ambled toward the door. That's when we saw her, the lady who owned the shed. How could she possibly have found us? She turned out to be a teacher for Delaware City Schools. She was known as a hard ass. I thought she must be psychic, not really as we had stupidly given our identities. Yes, we had been caught, and yes, we were punished. Our parents also had to pay for the broken glass. But honestly, we were just two normal nine-year-olds having fun. That's how I felt back then, a normal kid having fun. For a time, all was right in my world until that horrific day at the movie theater. I loved going to the movies, especially to see Westerns. Every Saturday, I would grab 50 cents from my money jar, jump on my huff and pedal to the Strand, our local movie theater. In those days, we would see a double feature with an intermission in between. Following the grand closing of the curtain after the first show, I would go to the concession stand counter to buy popcorn and then saunter over to the old-fashioned Coke machine where the world's greatest elixir would pour into a paper cup that appeared to be hanging in midair. One Saturday, a stranger quickly put a dime into the machine to purchase a Coke for me. He smiled and asked if I would help him do something in the theater. I thought maybe he needed help cleaning the restroom, as that was my job at summer camp. It never dawned on me that he could not have possibly known that. At any rate, we entered the classroom. What just happened, I asked myself. Why did he do that to me? What am I going to do? Who should I tell? I decided that no one could ever find out about this.
I was still scared, embarrassed, and sure it was terribly wrong to let this happen. How did he pick me? Was it the way I looked? I returned to my seat acting as if nothing had happened. I would keep that secret for over 20 years. Not long after that day, I started thinking about killing myself. Man. Steve, you've come over, you've overcome a lot of crap in your life. Sounds like so of you. <laughs> you know, I think all, all of us trauma survivors do that. Yeah. There is always one last question that I ask people before I let them go. And it's my favorite question of the day. Always. Okay. What is one thing that you absolutely love about yourself that's not related to your physical appearance? Well, I would say that I have always been one of the fun one of the funniest people around. And that's what has kept me going all of these years. Um, I don't know why it's part of me, but it just comes out. Now, since we've moved to Arizona and I don't, even though we've been here 15 years, it's hard to meet a lot of people. I, I don't do that as much as I used to. But humor is a way to get through almost anything. If you can get it to come out. But uh, I think that helped me along the way as much as anything. I think you have a beautiful sense of humor. I love it. So that's my story. <laughs> and you are absolutely amazing, Steve. I just, I just think you're awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I'm super happy you were able to spend some time with me today on, on my podcast. This is, this is a real honor for me. You're just, you're charming. And I'm not trying to steal you away from your wife or anything, but I totally <laughs> would if she wasn't in the picture. <laughs> you're just wonderful. I mean, I love your journey. You've done so much. I'd like to hear about yours sometime. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, I'm going to be speaking at a church in Heber Obergard, Arizona on April 30th. Where is it? Heber Overguard. I think it's like two hours outside of Phoenix. Yeah, Heber's up north. Yeah. How the hell did you pick to go there? <laughs> the pastor of a local church up there is a really good friend of mine, so he's asked me to come up and speak at his church. Oh, cool. Yeah. When is that? April 30. April 30th. I'll be at the Encounter Church at Heber Overgard, which I believe is still in the community center. So my friend used to have a church up in Denali, Alaska, mm -hmm. and he moved down uh, and, um, his church up there in Alaska is doing really well. So he came down here to start up another church down to the lower 48 and uh, started up in uh, Heber Overgard. I've never heard of Overgard. Is that is that one town? I think Overgard is like on the border right next to Heber, and it's like two little tiny towns all smushed together. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's 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 Encounter Church of Heber Dash Overguard. So I'm assuming it's just two towns. Okay. And when is that? Uh, April 30th. Let's see if I can find the Encounter Church Overguard. Trying to find the exact date and time here. Encounter Church, Arizona. Let's say, where's the events page? Encounter Community. Upcoming events. There it is. Amanda Blackwood, April 30th at 10.30 a.m. Okay. I'll look into that. Okay. And if you're not able to make it up, you know, I totally understand that, too. Of course, you're welcome. It's free to come. You know, there's, there's, they're not going to charge people to come in and hear me talk. Um, but uh, there's also there's a, a whole bunch of different interviews and stuff that I've done on different radio shows and, and podcasts and stuff. You can always listen to any of those if you don't want to come up on in April. Well, let me. Uh, I don't think I have anything on April 30th. See, being retired is pretty easy to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. Because there's nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Except to go and hang out with your lovely wife. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, as she always says, um, what does she always say? Well, I can't remember what that saying is, but you know, like, it's one to do 365. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com. <laughs>